Welcome to the Business Addicts Podcast, where the stakes are high, talk is cheap, and results are on the other side of commitment. Hosted by a former addict, myself, and I'm his wife, Jamie. We uncover addicts' mindsets, showing that the talents you've created in your struggle will be the superpowers you leverage to heal your deepest wounds. Listen to former addicts share stories of how they've flipped the switch, including insights into how much we can believe in ourselves. For those of you affected by addiction, we support your desire to help the addict in your life by raising the stakes and creating emotional barriers. Hello, and welcome back to the Business Addicts Podcast. We're excited. I've been waiting two months, I think, for this interview, Brian. So we're excited to have Brian here today. Brian Nichols. And we'll just jump right in, Brian. Why don't you introduce yourself to the to the podcast? Well, thank you, Kevin. And thank you, Jamie. I'm really excited to join you guys. I had the pleasure of meeting you both up at it was the uh, Young Gun Summit Winter Summit up in the uh, the beautiful chilly Wisconsin uh, winter. It was really fun up there in we were Bloomfield, I think it was so the convention center. Um, and it was a great chance to uh, sync up with uh, not only you guys, but every every other small business owner who's up there. Uh, it was a great chance to uh, network and talk about some some really cool things. And I think we're seeing business owners starting to uh, to ask some different questions, which makes me excited because my day job is uh, in the world of sales, but also my my side passion and, and hustle is the uh, the world of podcasting and uh, Liberty Podcasting specifically bringing the world of sales and marketing to the uh, the greater liberty movement. So I've found myself having people like Congressman Thomas Massey and Justin Amash on my program, um, all to me appearing on shows like a Timcast IRL, which I was just on last week when I was out uh, on my big hike out to the East Coast. So it's brought me to many different places I never would have thought I would, I would end up, but it also brought me to you guys. I got to hang out with you guys, and uh, we hung out at the uh, brunch afterwards at the uh, the Mexican place there next to the hotel. And it was great to uh, to learn your story, and, and obviously we we found some similarities and commonalities in our, our backgrounds here. Um, so that brought us to where we are today, yeah, exactly. huh? Exactly. Yeah. Um. Uh. And you can tell that Brian brings a lot of energy. He does a lot of things, and he was actually a speaker at the event, which I just have to say that's really cool. You know. The fact that you're getting out there and that you're being vulnerable and getting in front of 200 people or however many were there and not only doing a podcast, but you're getting up and speaking. That's that's great. Glad to see how much you're embracing you. your life and being serious about it, doing things. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think um, and this kind of goes to, to the whole point of the conversation today. So my story, I started out, I was when I was a kid ballpark 385 pounds at my heaviest. And that was around my junior year of high school. And for a long, long, long time. And, and I mean, pretty much if you think about time, so I had on my show, Dr. Adrian Bajan, he's one of the leading professors of, uh, at Duke University. He came up with the idea of constructal law, phenomenal mind uh, in the world of physics. And uh, he had a, a new book he just wrote called um, "Time: why, why Time Flies and Beauty Never Dies. And it talks about when we look at the context of time, how, you know, when you're, when you're 18, I mean, that's, that's one, you know, one, one year out of your 18 years, that's much more significant than one year out of your 60 years. Right. So, um, how the, the time feels so much longer, but you know, literally when you're 18 years old and all you can remember is being the, the fat kid. And it was like so hard to, 
to be confident. And and the the part that really bothered me too mentally was the fact that I had gifts to give. I very musical. I you know sing, play tuba, wanted to act, do all these fun things. And um, it wasn't until I lost my weight that I really felt that I had the chance to to shine. And and you know I I ended up doing. Uh, amazing things in terms of weight loss. I lost 180 pounds, um, which I still look back and it blows me away. And then, you know, I still, even though I started to do the things I liked to do, or at least I thought I wanted to do, and I thought I would like to do, I ended up still thinking that there was more to be found. And I, I kept on chasing the idea of what it was going to feel like once I had accomplished whatever my goal was. And I realized, no, I didn't realize at that point that it was not something that you really can ever truly obtain. It's something you're constantly going after. So I ended up, you know, back in my mid twenties, I, I went through a little bit of a dark period too, where I started to rely way too heavy, heavily on alcohol. And, you know, that, that ultimately led to me deciding, and it didn't really, the, the two and two didn't sync up in my mind when I decided to stop drinking back in July of last year. But it was just one of those things where I, I had a hangover after a night out with some friends. And I decided, I was like, I don't want to feel like this anymore. And I decided to stop drinking. And um, I, I also thought back to, well, you know, I'm not the best version of myself when I'm drinking. Just like when I was morbidly obese, I was not the best version of myself. So how, how, can, I, how can I be the best version of myself when I'm doing the things that are just going to bring me down. So I ended up making a really folk, like a big focus to once I stopped drinking back in July to like really just, you know, go all out. Like, you know, at, at this point, like, you know, I, I think I've, I figured out that you can't, you can't look to rely on those little things that you think will help, you know, care, like a crutch almost mentally or, or emotionally, but rather you have to approach life with this, this full zeal and enthusiasm and really like, I, I mean, I've lost way too many friends who were under the age of 30, all from uh, either suicides, uh, alcohol-related, you know, car accidents, drunk driving. I mean, you go down the list, and uh, it's it's tragic because a lot of them didn't feel that they had the ability to talk about their problems, so they just hid their problems, and then it ended up just behind the scenes turning into this big monster. And it ended up with them passing and, and to see their parents, you know, on Facebook still years later, just crushed. And, and that's a hurt that will never go away for them. And it's a hurt. They'll never go away for us. Um, but at the, at, at the same point in time, their tragedy is a lesson and it's something to look and use not to, you know, not to just look at and acknowledge that it happened, but to, to truly accept and embrace the fact that like there is something to be learned here and that life is valuable and that time is short. Um, and with that, with how limited time we have, we really have to take advantage of the time we're given because you know, you don't know when your time's going to be called. I had a, a good buddy from college and his mom, uh, you know, very, very fit. She vegan, you know, worked out every single day. The, the epitome, the example of health. And she went to sleep one night and didn't wake up because she had a brain aneurysm the next, like that, that middle of the night. And it, it just absolutely crushes your heart because, you know, you can see somebody who does everything right and still have something tragic happen. So I, I think, you know, my cheery, optimistic approach to things, um, it's almost because I, I feel 
I have a responsibility to like, I'm here. Um, and, and if, if I don't bring that optimism, then I almost feel that like the people who aren't here, like that they're, I don't want to say that they were right, like that it wasn't worth it, but like I want the, I want there to be hope for people, like to know that there's something beyond the day-to-day grind, the day-to-day just m- m- like the the melancholy that just is around yeah. the world con- like constantly it seems like like I just I feel that you have to be the change you want to see in the world. Like good people bring out the good in people, so like try to be good and do good recklessly at times. Yeah, this is <laughs> You know, the cool thing about having a podcast, since we're both podcasters, is that you get to sit and just be impressed about people. And that's what just happened to me as I listened to you. You know, it's just so cool to hear someone. And that's why we wanted to get you on the show. But, you know, it's I'm sure you've had this happen, too. You bring someone on the show and you kind of have in your mind how it'll go. And then it just goes so much better than you think. And <laughs> it's, it's so fun to do this. Um, and I mean, it's exactly what you're talking about in your life. Like when you embrace the part of you that you would never think was possible, like having a podcast that uh, suddenly you're just living on a different level and you're enjoying things at such a deeper level. Yeah, we we just appreciate what you just said. It's perfect. <laughs> um, anyway, let's Thank go you. back and introduce yourself again from the standpoint of like, early childhood just kind of give us a feel of who you were when you're growing up and kind of what led to some of those later struggles that you already introduced us to if you would yeah so i let's see when i I think back to like core memories and like i really remember back to my grandma's like 55th birthday so i was like four i think and and as a kid um you know i I always was a little heavier and my, my maternal grandfather, he used to God bless him, like use food as a reward. Uh, he used to pick me up from nursery school and I, I still remember like every day we would finish nursery school and on the way home, we would go to Burger King cause it was right there on the way. And I still remember to this day, like I had a backpack in a little clot, like a toy closet and there were just hundreds and hundreds of these little like Burger King toys. And it didn't dawn on me. Like every one of those represented a meal until like, you know, fast forward, you're, you're cleaning out things and you're, you're like, wait, these were all from the McDonald's and Burger King toys. And like, you're like, Oh my God, that's so much. And, um, that was, but that was just like, you know, that was not only was it a reward, but it was also like almost a form of manipulation, like to like, Hey, it like I'm giving you food. Um, and my my grandparents had split, so that really exacerbated itself back when he um and his his I think his his girlfriend ended up getting together as well. So like looking at food not just as what it was originally as the reward, but more so as a comfort that really started to you know spiral in my my head, and then it just became this uh you know I couldn't ever satisfy the hunger, um. And I would just, I, I would eat exorbitant amounts of food and I would just not be hungry. And, and, you know, even to this day, I could find myself snarfing down a nice big old tray of like 20 wings. And I'd be like, I could probably go for some more. Like I was the guy at the like Chinese buffet that they'd be like, oh no, he's back. That was me. Um, and, it, you know, thank God for my gluten allergy that I can't do that anymore because I would still be that person. I, I, I love food. I love 
like I, I love the how food makes me feel and that's definitely rooted in just like how i've had this relationship with food even from when i was a kid going forward then it seemed like what you've already told us is you've really got two big struggles so what made you decide to embark on the first one of lo- of losing a lot 180 pounds i mean there's there's the the easy answer which is like i knew i was gonna die um but i mean that that was probably like the one that was like the biggest slap in the face and i had always known i was unhealthy but it wasn't until it was a physical i did for i was getting ready to like start applying to colleges and i was like i probably should get a physical and i went to my doctor and she's a family doctor i'd had for a while and she's like brian this is the heaviest you've ever been i was like is it bad she's like it's 385 pounds and I was like, Ooh, that is bad. Um, and at that point I, I really didn't weigh myself a lot. And also I'm six, five. Right. So like, I, I, I'm, I'm big by just my stature. So I don't like, I, I looked, I was a big boy, but like, I didn't look morbidly yeah. obese. I was morbidly obese, but I didn't really have that. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed that out. And, by the way. I was, you know, if you don't see how big you are, like, I'm sorry, tall you are, <laughs> um, you know, you would, think well 385 pounds but yeah it probably didn't look like you were really that big because you're tall and 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 the thing is too like i'm i'm actually like for even back when i was heavy i was always a very athletic fat dude so like gym class football i was like running against guys who were playing on the lacrosse team and i was keeping up with them and they were like how and and i genuinely i don't know how like i was very athletic for a big dude but I think it was just the the fact that I ate so much food. Like I just was like I was never satiated ever. Um so yeah, I just I ate and I ate and I ate. Um but back to like your other question, you know, that was the easy answer. My doctor said that it was going to kill me. The real answer though, like I mean, the answer that really pushed me through the the BS and the part that sucks, which was like the two years of losing the weight, was like just wanting to feel comfortable in my own skin. Um I never ever felt comfortable in my own skin like going to pool parties seeing the, the the other boys take off their shirts and i was like oh i have man boobs and i'm like seven that's not that's not a good thing uh, i remember one of my neighbors uh dads was the little league coach i played it was like the on the same little league team as him we were out in the parking lot and talking about like the shirt sizes that we had to get <clears throat> and I remember I was like proudly like I'm a, an adult male large and and like it didn't hit me in first grade that that's probably not a good thing and and like it was th- it was like starting to realize that I didn't want that anymore. I didn't want to not feel that I could be myself and let that hold back who I actually was. So like I have been singing for as long as I really have been talking and I would do all these different events and I, I would always do it and enjoy doing it, but I always felt so uncomfortable. Like being on stage and singing, I knew I had a good voice, but I felt just awful in my own skin doing it. And I always thought that people weren't listening to me. They were looking at me and I played tuba and like, I was really good at tuba. Like what went to New York state honor band, like stuff like that. And I, I always felt like I was the stereotypical fat tuba player. And I just, I always hated the, the way that the, the, the weight made me feel in terms of either a embracing like a caricature 
or B, stopping me from being my like true authentic self. And I mean, also that goes into how like you have relationships with people too. Like, you know, when you're looking for a girlfriend and you're in high school, like it, it's so like it's so difficult to to ask somebody to see value in you and you have difficulty seeing value in yourself. So like how 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 can you go out and be like, hey, do you want to maybe go to a prom and dance with me? Because I'm worth it. And like you just feel like it's being so inauthentic and so ungenuine. And that comes across in the way that you present yourself to people. And it was like at that moment realizing like, okay, I I deserve better than this. Like I deserve especially, you know, when you're 17 and you're going to be going to college and stuff. I was like, I deserve to be me and not let like the things that frankly, I, I thought I couldn't control, but things I, I actually could control and, and actually focusing on that. And that was really like the moment that the, the light bulbs, you know, it switched, but it took, it took time to like get the wheels turning. Um, my, my family was a family of farmers and uh 1990s uh we sold all the cows away so we have all the the old barns and they're all empty and one of the main barns <clears throat> is about 200 feet or so long and i i hated like the idea of going to the gym and people staring at me which of course like for any fat person that was like the initial uh concern of going to the gyms everybody's going to be staring at me the big fat fatty on the treadmill trying to walk a mile without throwing up you know the the nachos i just scarfed down 3 minutes earlier so for me i decided to go out to my family's barn in the middle of february in upstate new york when it was like negative 40 degrees outside and i decided to walk up and down that middle of the barn um the aisle up and down probably I don't even remember 50 times a night. I just go back and forth and I would do that every single night. And I hated it. I hated it so much. And yet when I think back to it now, that is the memory that sticks with me the most about my weight loss journey is being in that stupid barn, walking up and down that aisle and just feeling the cold and, and hating every second of it and realizing that that was the, that was the beginning of the, like, the biggest change I'd ever undergo in my life of losing 185 pounds. And like that still to this day is something I can't really fathom. Cause that's like over a person, if you think about it in that perspective, but like, I, I never thought that that would ever be possible. Like at that moment, it just seems like that's such an insurmountable number and it's funny because I, I taught my sales team for, for a number of years, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And it's like, oh, that's how I did the weight loss. You know, I, I ate the elephant one bite at a time, metaphorically, of course. Um, but, but you give me the elephant, you cook it right. I might be able to eat it one bite at a time too. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was really something to, to feel to feel that accomplishment and look back. And But I'll, I'll tell you what though, the thing I wasn't prepared for was the people who were like, oh, what surgery did you do? And I was like, excuse me? What surgery did I do? Like I, I did the, the the gym and hard work and lifting weights and hating going to you know the the treadmill when it was like 75 degrees in there. And I, you know, for a bad person that I mean normal person doesn't sound that bad. 75 degrees for me, I that's like you know putting me in the gates of hell. So like I did not at all anticipate that response from people, but it really does go to the instant gratification society. I think why so many people get stuck at where they are because we almost expect there to always be 
the people who are succeeding having some easy button they have pushed. Yeah, like a lot of people who get success, whatever that may look like, they get it through the the hard work, the blood, the sweat, the tears, the walking up and down the stupid barn for three weeks to lose the initial like 20 pounds. Like that, that's the part that I think really hurt the most that I didn't expect or wasn't prepared for. But I mean, to take it a step further too, like also that that didn't make me happy. It helped me feel happier and helped me be my net, like my self, like, and actually be myself. But that I thought that it was going to make everything perfect and it didn't. And, and that's where I like really got hit. Cause I was like, Oh, this, this wasn't a, like the utopia, right? This didn't all of a sudden make everything magical rainbows and, and butterflies and stuff. So then I had to really start to focus on my sense of why versus my sense of just am. And that once I figured out my why, and that was, you know, that was the Simon Sinek approach, right? Find your why that, that really hit me. And it's funny. I didn't even realize that until, um, after the fact I found the book after I found my why and I was like, I need to find my why. And then I found the book and I was like, get out of here. Um, but like, that really has been the the best thing it has been finding the why. And I think people conflate a, a why with like a goal. Your why isn't necessarily a goal. Your why is a purpose. There's like, there's something beyond, like my goal is to get more people on board with what I consider to be the, the best ideas out there in the world of liberty, right? And and I do that through using sales and marketing. That's my goal. But like my why is to help change hearts and minds. And and there's no there's no timeline on that, Right. But like we as a society have so embraced this approach to life of like, hey, we have to like accomplish things in a certain time frame. You have to check the box off and then move on to the next thing on the list. Whereas your why, it it never ends. And as a matter of fact, it, it changes in many cases over the years. It, you, your, your why might embrace new things. It might have a different calling. You, you might find a different calling. COVID made so many people find their callings. Um, and, and thank God, like it, it, it's, I just had an episode where I had Carrie McDonald from Feed, the foundation for economic education. She's their um, senior education, uh, analyst. And she was talking about educa- educational entrepreneurialism and how you've seen like pop-up micro schools and, and, uh, pandemic pods and how now they're turning into full-fledged communities and schools that never would have been talked about three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, it would have been laughed at. You wouldn't call the kooky conspiracy theorist who's going to put your you know kids with tinfoils on their head. And now it's not only uh, normal, but it's almost accepted. Like now people are starting to say like, yeah, this is an yeah, alternative. Perfect. Yeah. So yeah, that, that was a, that was my yeah, monologue. That's there. awesome. No, I think what you just did is you gave us like an advanced PhD type class on how to turn your struggles into your superpowers, which is exactly what this podcast is about. So we really appreciate it, what you just said. And let's just take a moment and celebrate what you're talking about. So you lost 180 pounds. And like that, those weeks when you're just walking up and down the barn in the middle of this track and you're just absolutely hating it. I'm guessing that and you already said this to a certain extent, but several times in the future, you go back in that and you're like facing something tough and you're like, wait, <laughs> I lost 180 pounds. I mean, I walked for three weeks up and down a barn and I hated every minute of it and I still did it and I still continued and I got to the gym and I did all these things. And 
I mean, behind the thing that was against you that we've we've heard a little bit, but is the shame of what you had about your own image and everything what everyone said to you and even how they showed like and I'm not saying that they didn't love you, but the people early on that were just like food is love, that kind of thing. Like that was all against you. Not only the moments that you're walking up and down the barn and you stood against all of that and you've, you had victory, you know, over all of that. So that, that's awesome. Like that's the moments like that, that we overcome things. Um, and then we can build on that. And like a few years later, sure. I want to quit alcohol. Oh, no big problem. I'll probably do that easy. I, I'm, I'm guessing. Right. I mean, it kind of, uh, and, and, you know, I don't miss alcohol. Like I thought it would. Um, it was weird though. The other day, it was a really nice sunny day here in, in Indiana. And I, I just got this really strong craving for a, a cranberry with vodka, which I never really drank ever. And I was like, Hmm, I wonder. And I went over to the Tito's that was still on the counter and I sniffed it and I just about threw up. I was like, Nope, hard pass, put it away. And I was like, yeah, that was probably one of the best decisions to stop drinking. And, and frankly, like I have found that every time I do one of these little like tinkers and I, I try to do something challenging that I find myself like almost upgrading to like the next level that it's like the, the next best level of myself. And I think it's, it's to that point of it's a challenge and if you constantly keep your body in a state of challenge of, of trying to do new things and get and get comfortable with being uncomfortable, you you get to a point where you you're no longer like you're no longer chasing a goal for the sake of chasing a goal. You're chasing a challenge in the sake of facing that challenge. If that makes sense no, at yeah, all, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so like I I think that right there was the main thing I noticed. Yeah. yeah. So now. Uh, when you live authentically and you're fully in your skin, you fully appreciate yourself. I actually did a podcast just recently. It hasn't released yet, but around just connecting to ourselves, like being comfortable with ourselves. And when we do that, then we're like so happy and available and able to connect to other people. Like we can, you and I can sit down at a dinner table and I can go up to you and say, Hey, I'm a former addict. And, and, uh, you know, this is what I, I used to consume pornography and all this. Stuff. And you're like, Oh, it, really? I, I used to eat a lot of food. Did you, did you know that I used to be 385 pounds? I mean, that's the kind of conversation you can have when you're working on yourself and you're really excited about your life. And then, and how do we put a limit on what can happen at that point? Like, you have no idea who you're going to meet and what valuable relationship you're going to create in the future if you're living your authentic self. And yeah, I think that's the best buzz ever is to really be you. And, and you know what I, I, you, know, you talk about the superpower, like being empathetic is easily one of the most underutilized superpowers that anyone can learn and master and and empathy is is truly just like being able to walk in somebody else's shoes to understand how they feel. I, I have a, a good friend in the sales world, Victor Antonio. Um, he was actually just back in the program. He has a great new book just came out called Mastering the Upsell. We talked about that, but he um, has a podcast uh, called uh, Sales Influence: Finding the Why and Why People Buy. And 
in one of the episodes, he's describing empathy and he does it in such a gross way. I love how he does it. He says, imagine, imagine the person that you're, you're sitting next to that they're puking, they're puking into a toilet bowl, but they're not just puking to a toilet bowl with it. You're there. You're holding their hair back. You can feel them every time they, they puke into that toilet bowl. That's empathy. You feel their pain. And I was like, that's the grossest, most disgusting way to think of empathy. But he's right because empathy, we've, we usually find we share the most empathy where we find the most pain or the biggest challenges or obstacles that we've overcome. And, and that right there, being empathetic in the world of sales, in the world of politics, in the world of addiction, understanding how people got to where they are and then how we can get them to a different state. I mean, that is literally what I do in sales. I get people from where they are and the challenges they're facing to a better future where we've overcome those challenges and they can see themselves with sunshine and rainbows. But we do that through me going through understanding how they got to where they are, who were the people that helped with the buying decision in the past? What were the factors they'd look into? Why do they choose this existing vendor? How does that relationship work? What issues have they had in the past? What things have popped up that they didn't consider that now they're looking at in the future when they're considering vendors? All this stuff in the sales world, we use this in the world of medicine. Doctors, when they when you come in, they're not just gonna give you a pill when you say, I don't, I don't feel good. I have a headache. Here's a pill. I mean, some doctors might, but they're probably gonna ask you a few more questions, right? They're gonna dig deeper, they're gonna wanna learn why you feel the way you feel, the symptoms that you're showing, what other things are maybe bothering you and and try to really paint a full picture. And I, I had a couple of folks on my show recently who actually focus on the world of addiction. And the approach they have is, I think it's called the, the liberty approach or the freedom method. I forget. I think it's the freedom method. And the entire approach is getting away from the, you know, you're a victim, woe is you and saying, no, no, you're like you have the power to control what you can control so long as you decide you're you're in the mindset of being ready to take that responsibility if you want to control it's there for you to take take that power but you have to be willing to make that choice and the responsibility and in some cases the consequences that come with taking that that choice and he said that when you you give people that approach to really owning their their issues, but then working through the issues versus constantly trying to numb those problems or to almost victimize themselves in the the problems that the, the success rates start to go up exponentially. And, and that right there speaks to going back to Dr. Adrian Bajan um, and his constructive law, the idea that everything in life will move to another point in its easiest way. And that will be the way of least resistance. Um, so not only is is freedom uh, you know, nature, but freedom is science. Uh, the idea of us wanting to go to a, an idea of, of pure freedom and autonomy, but with that, the control and the ability to control what we can control, it goes hand in hand. And, and I think once we start to embrace that approach, which I think the people who go through addiction in, in whatever form it may present itself to them, um, they get that in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think about some of the addicts that are changing the landscape of this country today. And, you know, we, we hear a lot of negative stuff and, and then we're just inundated with just garbage, right? But when you just take a look at some of the addicts today, like Brene Brown, for example, and we're talking to you and... Um, myself and 
there's many others. Uh, there's CEOs out there that are coming out and saying, hey, I used to be a drug addict or, you know, uh, what's his name? Grant Cardone. Uh, people that are just mm-hmm. yep. really, really passionate about life. And they're like, you know, I live life at way below average and I'm not going to do it anymore. And I don't want to see this, my company operate at a low level. I don't want to see my country want operate at a low level. I'm not interested in anything at that level that I was before. And now, yeah, I, I'm just so interested in, in a life of really being present and seeing what can be done. And, and that's when you start to have the, the conversations like you are about changing the world because you're coming from a place of believing that, hey, I can change me. So I know we can change we. And I know we can change us. And right? I mean, it just changes your whole perspective. So I, I definitely celebrate what you're saying there. It's funny you say that because if you had told me three years ago I was going to be on Tim Pool's show, Tim Cast IRL, and that in the first day, the episode I had would have over 375,000 views on YouTube alone. I would have laughed. I would have said, okay, you know, a year into my podcast, you know, I'm having all these conversations with people that are getting like, you know, a hundred downloads, maybe if I was lucky, 50 downloads if I was lucky. And I was like, yeah, that, that would never happen. And fast forward to today. And I mean, that happened last week and I'm still kind of like buzzing from it. And yet it would never have happened had I not embraced a a growth mindset and a mindset of taking these chances. I mean, my wife and I just up and moved from Philadelphia, PA in January because we were like, we need to make a change because the city is falling apart and also the Northeast sucks. Um, so let's go ahead and do that. So we did. And, and it was one of the best decisions we ever made because I mean, not only do we feel the the mental release of being in an area that, you know, people don't hate you because of your ideas, but also like the, the, the idea of being around people who have shared values and, and that is huge. Like culture is so important and being around good, good people. Uh, my CEO for my company, he has uh, writing little sayings around the, the corporate office over in Jersey. Um, and before I, I ducked out of the East Coast, and I, I still, I'm so thankful I still get to work for the company. Um, but one of the expressions is good people bring out the good in people. And I have, I, I actually, I think I told that story at the uh, the convention. Um, and I have fully embraced that, that mentality. Um, like, if you, there's a silly little thing on Facebook I saw the other day. It was like, you surround yourself with six losers and you'll become the seventh. You surround yourself with six winners, you'll become the seventh. You surround yourself with six millionaires, you'll become the seventh. So you surround yourself with what you want to become. If you want to become the better version of yourself, then sometimes that requires you to upgrade. And and with that, you have to go out of your way to upgrade like the people that you're going to be hanging out with. But sometimes you have to fire your friends. And and that part was the part that really like hit me hard is knowing that like as you go to those different stages in life there are certain people that are definitely going to hold you back and it's not only okay it's almost a responsibility that you have to go out and fire them you doing a podcast and also having a day job and the way you talk about that and what you like putting yourself out there and your beliefs out there and just embracing uh 
who you are authentically across your whole life and your employer knows what you're doing and is supporting you and and like everyone in your life is supporting you like that's such a huge snowball effect can you talk to us about that yeah and you know it's funny how things happen like I was on Tim Pool, and his audience is definitely, you know, more in the, I would say, like, liberty-leaning camp, and I, I, one of my good friends had said, like, hey, be careful, like, there's gonna be people who don't like the fact that you're on a conservative show, I, I'm not kidding, I got, like, 13 messages of people who are interested in my services for cybersecurity stuff, like, within a day, and I, I laughed because, and Ben Shapiro is showing this right now over at the Daily Wire too. What they're doing is that there is a demand in the marketplace for an authentic alternative, and and with that, like, it's not even necessarily being an alternative. It's just like not being afraid to speak your mind and speak your values. People respect that and they appreciate that. And you know, my my CEO, he's never been shy to to hide his his beliefs. Thank God, I love the fact that he doesn't do that. Um, you know, culture matters. We, my company that we I, I work for, we have our our fundamentals that we all focus on. I think there's 33, 32 fundamentals that we have, and we cycle through them every single uh, every single week, and then we start over from from number one and go back through the list. And it's because everybody who's been at my company, they all will adhere to these basic fundamental cultural values that we maintain as a company. And, and the, the number one idea of good people bringing out the good in people that is fostered by good culture. That that's, that's how good develops is, is focusing on what is good. And you know, this, <laughs> I didn't mean to, but like, this is why words matter. Like we, we see the conversations that are happening today. Of, well, what is a woman? No, no, no. Like, we, this is why we have to make sure that we're talking about what is good. And and I get, you know, in some, some fights with my libertarian friends to remind them that being a libertarian is not being libertine. It means that you have to not only embrace freedom, but also embrace consequences and responsibilities. So being able to have values and certain morals and ethics that you're going to hold standard, not just for other people, but for yourself. Yeah. So what I'm hearing from you is embracing the the real rules, the real morals, the real, what we think of as reality. And if we're living in reality and it's giving us the rewards that it we're, we're expecting or we're choosing because of what we're putting into our life, that's completely different world than where you're completely disconnected from reality. You don't believe that you can become your best self and you're just wanting to blame everyone and come up with an excuse for who you are. And, and that. Okay. I'll give you a perfect example, Kevin. Um, so I will not tie this person in any way because they'd be very identifiable. But there is a person I know of who they have spent probably 10 years recently of their life just basically living as a hermit, playing video games and doing really nothing with their life, which is fine. But then I talk to that person and see the the anger and the resentment and the hate that they have in their heart and the lack of drive, of motivation, of, of goals, of sense of, of self-worth. And it hit me like, oh, yeah, it's because this person has never, A, had to really overcome anything challenging in their life, but B, 
they've never made it a goal to better themselves. They've never set a goal. They don't know what a goal is. So their instinctual reaction when they don't get things that they see other people getting is not that of, oh, I should be able to go out and work hard to get that. Let me try. It's, well, I want to take that person down. I'm going to go after that person. I'm going to make that person the bad guy. And and that that has been like one of the, the big eye openers for me is that you cannot get somebody to change who doesn't want to change. Um, you can, you know, the proverbial horse that you can lead to water, right? Like that's, that's true to an extent um, where you can bring people to the truth. You can give them the manual. You can give them the how-to. But until they actually sit down and say, okay, I have to do step one, step two, like it's, it's on them to take that step. Um, so I, I think it's also important, and this goes to kind of like know your market, like know, know what your goals are and know who you should be reaching out to, to surround yourself with that are good people that are also in that same mentality. Like if you find that you're hanging out at the bar at night at 10 o'clock every night, that might not be the crowd you want to hang out with. Like Maybe you should be looking to hang out with, you know, business entrepreneurs or doing things like I do every night, pretty much a podcast where I'm talking to somebody. But you know, those people I talk to, they're CEOs, they're CIOs, they're VPs, they're politicians or like economists. They're people who I know can not only help me better myself, but in the event I ever needed to reach out and, you know, leverage their network, they're there for me. And, and that's different. Like those relationships you built with different people, like by their nature, they're different, but they're also, they have more value to them because if you're going to make yourself uncomfortable by t- having different conversations and uncomfortable conversations, then you're going to be more prepared for like when things get more tough, right? Like then when you go and we sit down and we realize that we both went through addiction together, like you all of a sudden can acknowledge like, oh, this is a lot easier to have this conversation. Like, because we've both experienced it. Yeah. 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 You have some common ground. You also yeah, it goes back to what you said about empathy already. Um, and also, I, I guess another thing that I think is appropriate to bring out here is, okay, so not only are you not reaching your goals, but like you said, that person has anger. And a lot of, like, there's a lot so of emotional anger. abuse that comes with being unhealthy. Uh, emotional abuse of abusing ourselves and emotional abuse of, like, really being toxic to the people we love. Right. So it's there isn't like a uh, yes, it's really beneficial to go and make a commitment to change your life. But also like there's just this huge shift, like the whole landscape is shifting because suddenly all that anger, that anxiety, all that toxic energy you had before that you were putting on others, whether you really wanted to or not, you didn't have a choice of doing that because you weren't in that headspace of like even realizing what you're doing suddenly everyone around you is reaping the benefits of your choices and you're reaping the benefits of your choices and you're encouraging someone else. So it's like, there's so many different levels to this. Yep. Yeah. Well, and, and I think one thing I have found has been once you start to get your, your house in order, like the, the Jordan Peterson, like, why don't you clean your own room first? Um, I've really found that it gives you the chance to feel much more, uh, much more able to objectively look at things in, in a different light as well. Other things beyond the issues that you're currently facing in your life. Right. So, you know, it gives me the chance to talk about things in the world of politics a little bit differently because I'm taking things from an objective standpoint versus an emotional standpoint. Now, 
That's also important to know that the emotion is the number one driving force in people making decisions. So with that being said, you know, know that emotional factors are what people will make decisions on, but it's understanding how to bring the world of emotion and then tie it to the world of empathy, right? And once you tie it to that world of empathy, now we're starting to get back to what we were talking about before, where you're understanding the person that you were speaking to, and then you can best start to solve the problems. But you can't get to that point until you can separate the emotion from the empathy. Because if you lead with the emotion and then emotion consumes, then you completely lose the ability to be objective. You lose the ability to be logical and you start to, to lose that rational state of mind and when we start to act on emotion, though, you know, we, we will try to go back and, and justify with with logic and rationale. Oh, I ate, you know, 1400 calories in one sitting. I'll go on the treadmill for 15 minutes. That'll burn off everything. Right. And we'll try to make it so we can explain away the problems. But we're not being objective. Now we've invested ourselves in the emotional standpoint versus actually focusing on like, oh, that wasn't maybe it wasn't a good idea to eat the cake like you shouldn't have put, put the fork in your mouth to begin with, Brian. And that that will change once you start to get things in more of an objective state. You start to clean up more of your room. Things can start to be more more clear. It's like um, you know, you go to the eye doctor and you're like, these glasses, they're not working anymore. And they're like, here, try this. And they like hit the, the button and and all of a sudden everything crystal clear again, right? It's like getting the new prescription. All of a sudden, now you can start to see things clearer and things start to be more objective and make more sense. And, and that is is so much more liberating, right? Because now you you feel like the I mean, <laughs> I can see clearly now that the, the rain is gone, right? It's it's truly that kind of yeah, a feeling. Exactly. Uh, I guess I had a thought around just emotional intelligence. It's been something that I've been looking into recently, and that and I really think you described it very well because we do have to learn to separate our emotion and our choices, like. Yes, emotions do have value and they're there for a reason. But when we are just making choices based only on emotion and not some logic, uh, what I'm learning is that uh, when we get all these inputs, they're going first through the emotional part of our brain. And then after that, they get to the logical part of our brain. So we actually have to exercise the muscle of taking that logical part of the brain and processing the emotion and the situation, the facts about the situation, so that we can actually make a choice that's not emotional. And those of us that maybe, like for me, there was many, many years of addiction there. And yes, I was fighting what was happening, but yet when you're trying to deal with that and trying to justify yourself or or trying to uh, be in your own head in some way that makes sense to you and say, I'm, I have some value because of whatever I've made up today. Um, I'm not able during that time to also work on my emotional intelligence. And so when you get free, then you can work on your emotional intelligence and understand, you know what? I do have to take my emotional, uh, when my wife tells me she's, she's decided to spend X amount more per month, I, I have to spend, <laughs> some time to let that emotion process when, you know, when you're trying to build a business or something like that, when cash is a little tighter than it used to be, you know, those types of things is when I have to take some time and process that and actually learn to build that, that muscle. Does that make sense? It's just like going to the gym. Like I, and 
you know, I, I always get so frustrated when I see people who like do not appreciate people who are like, you know, weightlifters and stuff like it takes so much energy to and so much time and so much effort to to build the muscle. Like I, I went, so when I was 385, went down to 200 pounds. I really didn't lift that much weight. I just did cardio pretty much. I was running like a 5k at the treadmill every day. And then I was like, you know, I'm scrawny. I'm six, five. And I don't look healthy. Cause I look, you know, I'm, I'm skeletal at this point. I should probably start to put on some muscle. So then I started to lift some weights and I was like expecting it to be like, you know, oh, I'm going to look like Chris Evans and Captain America overnight. And it's like, oh, no, that takes a little bit longer than it you think it does. And it turns into, again, back to you never really you never really hit the goal. Like you're always in pursuit of the, the goal that will change. Right. Um, you know, my original goal member, when I was like, I'm going to bench press 135. And then I got to like bench pressing 305. And I was like, Remember back when 135 was my goal and now I'm over double that. And then, and then all of a sudden you start to realize like, oh, the progression, the journey that you've already gone on is actually part of like the accomplishment. You, you can look back at that and, and actually appreciate that. And that's, that's going back to like the building the muscle. Like you, you know that for every inch you gain on your, your arm, that that was extra reps that you put in. That was more weight you put on but it would only have gotten bigger. It would only gotten stronger. Had you, you'd gone out and you got uncomfortable. You went beyond your comfort zone. You said, okay, you know, I'm used to only using 25 pound, uh, pound dumbbells, but today we're going to try the thirties. We're going to give it a shot. Maybe only for, only for one, one set, but we'll give it a shot. And then, you know, you, you finish up in your arms. You can't lift them up over your head because you, you, you have noodle arms like, you know, from SpongeBob. So at that point, then, you know, fast forward five, you know, five months and now you're curling with 35 pound dumbbells and, and it's, it's so much easier. Now you go to you know, the 30 pound dumbbells are your warm up, And, and that is the progression that you don't realize is happening, but people want it to happen overnight. It doesn't happen that way. And, and I think part of recalibrating things is getting back into the mindset of, you know, there is no instant gratification. Delayed gratification is something we have to like teach our kids. You know, I think that's going to be a big thing going forward. You know, I think we, we really need to make it a point when we're raising our kids to not only, you know, teach them value, teach them culture and such, but also help install and and bring back the idea of that delayed gratification to show the value of working hard to get something in return versus just pushing a button and then, you know, push button burger come out like, no, like how did the burger come to be? There's a great book. Um, one of the, my, my friends, Julie Borowski wrote is called nobody uh, knows how to make a pizza. It's an homage to the uh, eye pencil um, where, you know, you go through how you build a pencil and you like, think of a pencil, it's a pencil, nothing special, but yet to a pencil, you have the, the wood, you have the rubber, you have the metal, you have the lead, you have the person who has to actually forge it together. And all that goes in to making a pencil. Well, she wrote a book and it's, you know, how nobody knows how to make a pizza. It's a kid's book. And it's the same premise. You know, you go ahead and you eat your pizza, but like, do you know how your pizza was made? Like, where does the flour come from? Where did the pepperoni come from? The mushrooms, the, the cheese. And it goes through and shows how there are so many little pieces that all come together to make a pizza. Um, but the, the same approach is that like showing the value of, this is how it came to be. It's not, well, you go to grocery stores to get food. Duh. That's where it comes from. It's like, oh, it doesn't come from farms. Doesn't doesn't come from the Midwest and, and flyover country that you ignore all the time. Like that's that's the part that people don't understand in, in many cases. And a lot of it is because they never had to understand. They never, I mean, I was in Philadelphia for seven years. 
I saw firsthand where people would literally just, you know, go to stores, get their food from a corner store. And that was their experience for food. They never saw a garden. They never saw a farm. So like for them, that's, that's literally where the food came from. Um, and the, the context of like, no, 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 there's, there's so much more woven into this than just you walking to the corner store and it being there. Um, and, and I think that's partly on the, the generation, you know, right now that that's raising kids, but also the generations from before who have, we, we've almost sacrificed appreciation of the process for the, <laughs> the, the, the short-term instant gratification of that short-term instant gratification. Um, we, we really like doing the easy way and that's sad. The easy button, you know, that, that old Best Buy commercial, um, like we've taken that to an extreme, uh, and, and I think we've really lost the, the why and understanding how and why things happen. And wouldn't we forget that we also lose the, the value of why that came to be like, what was this trying to solve? What, you know, what problem did the light bulb solve? You, you know, give a kid a candle, make them walk around a house for a night with a candle and say, Hey, this is what life was like in like 1856. <laughs> You'll appreciate that light bulb, huh? So make sure you turn it off at night so our electric bill's not, you know, going through the roof when you're going to sleep playing your Xbox. Like that that will teach a kid more about the value of light and electricity than you just, you know, making him sit and watch a Thomas Edison documentary or whatever. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I read a book, uh, I think it was called Thou Shalt Prophet. It was written by a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, and he makes the point that uh, one Jewish teaching that they learn is that Adam started out and he did everything himself. Like if God didn't do it for him, then then he had to do it himself or his or Eve did, you know. So basically everything that he had was just him. Uh, well, if we today think about how many people make our lives awesome, like that's thousands of people. Thousands and thousands of people are making our life awesome. I mean, even just in this country, people from 1500s, 1600s, 1700s that died so that we could, a, for example, read the Bible or have a country that's free. Um, all of those things were are here because, yeah, I mean... They did all the work and we get to enjoy it. And that doesn't, that's not just our daily needs. That's like just being free, right? And then we think about the microphone I'm talking on. I mean, just it's, it's mind boggling how many people are helping us every day to live an awesome life. Yeah. Well, and, and that appreciation, like going back and, and teaching kids and getting, I mean, we talked about this at the, the, you know, little lunch in there, like getting kids out of government schools, letting, you know, parents get their kids education back under their arm and actually, you know, having a role in education instead of deferring to government ed experts in public schools. Like that will be the number one thing I think that will help because we've, we've stopped teaching the things that matter and, and we really have to get back to focusing on what really matters. So yeah, I, I think we're, we're at a point right now where, and this is where we go back to the world of politics, right? More and more people are waking up to a different way of doing things. And that's exciting. Like of, of all the times to be living through right now, you know, the the doom and gloom that's on the, the horizon, it seems like 
even though that's still there, there's so, so much to be looking forward to. So many positive things have been happening in the world of innovation and, you know, really helping change the way we have conversations and, and changing the conversations that are being had. And, and I think that is something that we really got to take advantage of and, and be appreciative of, of, especially when things are so awful at times. Yeah. We have such a privilege to, instead of blaming everyone for where we're at, like, like you were talking about this generation, our privilege. I mean, right now we have just an amazing amount of resources and help to do, to be our best selves. So now is the time to do this and to make that choice to change your life, to make that choice to, if you're still addicted or you know someone who's an addict, turn them on to this podcast and, and really start making a change. And I think Brian is definitely one of the best guests we have so far at getting you to understand what the difference is. Look at him. Listen to him. He's not someone that's sitting on the couch eating potato chips. He's literally living his life at a really high level. And if you hear him speak or you go and check out his podcast or whatever you do, there's energy. And it's even tough. Like you're inspiring me to a certain extent. I got to get going because I can barely keep up with you here today. So well, Kevin, thank you very much. Jamie, thank you for, for hanging out with us. I, I'm really looking forward to hearing this um, and sharing because, yeah, I mean, this is a conversation a lot of people are afraid to have. Um, people, there's a stigma around addiction. And if I could leave the audience with, with this, it's that, you know, it's it's okay to talk about the things that aren't okay. Um, you know, you have to get okay with being not okay. And that's okay. Uh, and, and there are people out there who are likely facing the same thing that you are. And to hear you be open and talking about your experiences gives them in turn permission to talk about their experiences. And that's how healing begins is talking about the problems, identifying the problems that I can't sell somebody on a new solution that's going to solve their problems if I don't know what their problems are to start with. So being able to uncover their problems and be open and honest with that. So uh, yes, thank you for, for inviting me on the program. And thank you for letting me talk about, yes, my, my addiction. Yeah, thank no, a lot, and a lot more. And I, I just the last thing I want to just thank you for is just being being what I think is a, just a, a real man, being willing to do to talk about your problems and to talk about your life and the real part of your life is being men. I, I've been just recently checking out this book called um, The Gift of Fear, and this guy has spent his life just studying protection. And what he brings out is how a lot of guys have just been sitting around for decades creating emotional problems and then putting it on the women and abusing them and all of this. And I think that we all have responsibility to our world and to our families and to ourselves. But I love when I meet a guy that's that as engaged as you are, and I, I'd almost like to talk to your wife just to make sure, but I'm, I'm just guessing she's going <laughs> to be right behind you. And, you know, like that's such a good thing. Like you can really make an impact on your family with where you're coming from. You can change your family tree and not saying that it was bad before, but like you can make a big change into what they're going to be doing in their future and how much they're going to be able to help others. And I think that that's one thing that we have the opportunity in this generation to do is because we're learning to be sensitive guys to a certain extent and be vulnerable about who we are. And it's not just about how much, uh, how tough I can show you that I am. We have the opportunity to change our world and to know each other in a different level than we used to.
and 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 being a guy, yes, it, it means being emotional and empathetic, but also standing for things and understanding why you stand for things. And I think that too is we're seeing right now a lot of guys who are finally saying, "Yep, you're right. I can I can I can be my emotional and empathetic self, but I will also stand for what is right and what is wrong." And that I think right there is where we're finding a lot of people, you know, the proverbial men from the boys like it, it actually is happening right before yes, our eyes. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Brian, for being on the on the podcast and appreciate your time very much. And we'll talk to you guys all next time. Thank you for tuning in. And to stay in touch, email us at info at businessaddictspodcast.com.